0: This weekend, Lowell had a previous obligation, is out of town. And as a consequence, when the starting quarterback is gone, they call in the sub from the bench. I make this analogous to when Sam Hartman is benched and they call back Joe Montana. <laughs> Except now Joe Montana's in his 70s. Anyway. Uh, here I am this morning, so I hope you can tolerate it somewhat. As has been noted by a couple of you, my tendency is to somehow work the subject of death into my sermons, because after all, I am somewhat weird and have been obsessed with this subject for a long time. So I don't wish to disappoint by touching on the subject this morning, at least tangentially. I want to tell you the story of two lifelong friends, Frank and Leonard. Frank fell ill. And when it became clear that Frank was dying, Leonard visited him every day. And one day, Leonard said, Frank, we both love playing golf all our lives, and we started playing soon after high school. Please do me one favor when you get to heaven. Somehow you must let me know if there's golf there. And Frank looked up at Leonard from his deathbed and said, Leonard, you've been my best friend for many years. If it's at all possible, I'll do this favor for you. And shortly after that, Frank died. A few weeks later, Leonard was awakened from a sound sleep by a blinding flash of white light and a voice calling out to him, Leonard, who is it? asked Leonard, sitting up suddenly. Who is it? Leonard, it's me, Frank. You're not Frank. Frank just died. I'm telling you it's me, Frank, insisted the voice. Frank, where are you? In heaven, replied Frank. And I have some really good news and a little bad news. "'Tell me the good news,' first said Leonard. "'Well, the good news,' Frank said, with joy and enthusiasm, "'is that there is golf in heaven. "'Better yet, all of our old buddies who died are there too. "'And even better than that, we're all young again. "'Better still, it's always summertime and it never rains. "'And best of all, we can play golf all we want "'and we never get tired and we get to play "'with all the greats of the past.'" "'That's fantastic,' said Leonard. "'It's beyond my wildest dreams.'" "'So what's the bad news?' Well, you'll be in my foursome this coming Saturday. <laughs> As I said, I'm often teased and chided, particularly by my family members, about my fascination and obsession with the subject of death. One morning, about five years ago, I learned that a college classmate of mine, Bob Lindman, died late one Friday night in Kansas City after complications from a quintuple heart bypass surgery. Bob and I were the same age. He was a graduate of Elkhart Central High School in 1967 and he played football there as well as at Harding College where we both attended. For about a year in the mid-70s, he and his wife Laura attended this congregation before moving to another part of the country. We were friends on Facebook, although we hadn't seen each other since the 70s, except for those posts on Facebook. And even while he was in the hospital with that surgery, he was posting pictures of himself in his bed and looked like he was recovering. But then one day, we got the message that he didn't make it. And honestly, learning of his passing was very depressing to me. And this isn't a new preoccupation. It's not because I'm now in the age group of most of those likely to be mentioned in an obituary. I think more than anything else, it's because I began observing death and its effects at a very early age and in a variety of scenarios. I was 10 years old when my Uncle Bob died at the age of 42. Although at that time in my life, 42 seemed old, now I know how young he was when he left us. And his was the first funeral I ever attended. And rather than being grief stricken, I found myself to be an observer, viewing his body in the casket, and I remember staring at it intently, so much so that I imagined that I saw movement. And I watched my family shed tears as they grieved, and it was my first recollection ever of watching my dad shed tears. Two years later, my family was vacationing in Arkansas, where my dad's parents lived, when we got a call to return to Indiana. My grandma Collins, who was Mima's mother, had been in failing health for some time and had lapsed into a coma and was not expected to live much longer. And I remember being with my mother and her family as we gathered in my grandparents' living room where my grandmother lay in a coma, keeping vigil, and observing my grandmother pass from this life into eternity. Her death was the first time I witnessed the exact moment of death in anyone. And she was the same age as I am now. They lived just a block and a half from the city cemetery where she would be buried. And I observed the effect of her passing on my grandfather who had struggled with a drinking problem all of his adult life. I learned that each day after her passing he would walk down to the cemetery and stand at her grave grieving. And it's my understanding that he stopped drinking the day that she died until he passed away almost two years later. Her death had a profound impact on him. But these were older people especially when you're young and just barely a teenager. And then on October 31st, 1963, I was a ninth grader coming out of school at the end of the day. My best friend at the time was going steady. That's what we used to call it. Today the kids say they're in a relationship. But he was going steady with a girl named Susie Worland. And this was back in the days when boys and girls exchanged metal dog tags to show that they were going steady. Now I didn't think Susie cared too much for me, she hardly ever spoke to me, but that day as we were coming out the school doors, we walked out together and she began engaging me in conversation and telling me how she was going to Indianapolis that evening with her grandparent and her sister to see the Holiday on Ice ice show and how excited she was and looking forward to it. And I began to think that I'd been all wrong about how she felt toward me and viewed me, and we would continue this breakthrough in our relationship in the days to come. What we didn't know that afternoon was that the ice show at the United State Fairground Coliseum would start, for whatever reason, a little over 10 minutes late. And during the finale of the show, before an audience of over 4,000 people, and it would have been over if it had started on time, a rusty propane gas tank was leaking in one of the concession stands beneath the seats of the Coliseum and eventually it would come into contact with an electric popcorn machine and the resulting explosion killed 74 people including Susie, her 15-year-old sister, and her grandmother. It was then that I was impressed by the fact that no one knows what the next day will bring. Since 1976 I have conducted well over 100 funeral services been with grieving families who were dealing with the deaths of loved ones, both expectedly and unexpectedly, and this subject continues to be a fascination for me even as I move closer and closer to my own appointed time, whenever that might be. It must be a reason I have such a rosy disposition. (laughs) A few years before I retired from the government, I was offered a post-retirement job by a prominent local funeral director. I didn't take it, and he has since passed on. Now, lest you think I have come to you this morning with a real downer of a sermon, this is not my intent at all. Rather, it is to make us aware that unlike the God we worship this morning, we are bounded by time. Just think about that for a moment. We worship a God who has no beginning and no end. Time for Him is meaningless. Peter warned Christians almost 2,000 years ago, but do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. But we are not the creator. We are the creation. We have a beginning and an end to our allotted time on this earth. We have time boundaries. And reading through the Old Testament, we find that as sin increased among the creation, human ages continued to diminish until finally the psalmist writes in Psalm 90 verse 10, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. The National Center for Health Statistics told us in 2015 that the average lifespan for a male now in the United States is 78.74 years. That means if I'm average, I've got four years left on this earth. But how quickly four years will pass. It was just four years ago that Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his prison cell. It was just four years ago that Donald Trump was impeached for the first time by the US House of Representatives. It was just four years ago that the cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris was devastated by fire and two weeks ago this morning, Diane and I were walking by that cathedral which is still in ashes. Four years ago, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle had a baby. If you didn't have that on your counter, put it on there. So four years is nothing. And I may be blessed with extraordinary genetics. My mother's last surviving sister was 96 when she passed away. Her last surviving brother was 93. When my mother was 93, she was still driving like a teenager. And she was 95 when she passed. So maybe I get another 20 or so years. But what does that mean? It means I cannot count on any of that. James exhorts Christians in James chapter 4 beginning with verse 13 Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. When you're young... And vibrant, we think will last forever. This last week, my wife and I helped our second grandson, Caleb, to move from Fort Wayne to Austin, Texas. And as we were unloading the U-Haul truck in Austin and carrying stuff up two flights to his apartment, I realized that I cannot do now what I could do 50 years ago and I used to work for a moving and storage company. We actually moved a baby grand piano up three flights of apartment stairs in Muncie, Indiana one time. I don't know where that chuck went. (laughs) None of us knows what tomorrow will bring, and so that way too long introduction brings me to the verse that I want to make central to this morning's message. It is at the midpoint of our scriptures. Psalms 113 through 118 comprise a wonderful six-psalm praise to God called the Egyptian Hallel. And Hallel means praise in Hebrew. These six psalms were sung during the main Jewish holidays, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. Psalm 118 is most, was most likely sung by Jesus himself at that last Passover meal that he had with his apostles. excuse me and in Psalm 118 verse 24 which Jesus likely sang his last night of his mortal existence we find these words this is the day the Lord has brought about we will be happy and rejoice in it you and I are not promised tomorrow we've already lived yesterday but today is the gift that God has given us And the psalmist declares, we will be happy and rejoice in it. And this is not a natural reaction to our present day circumstances. I confess, I do not spring out of bed each morning and shout, this is the day the Lord has given us, I will rejoice and be happy in it. Do you do that? I have been very unpracticed in approaching each new day with that kind of resolve and determination. I'm more likely to look at the clock and think, why can't I sleep one more hour? Or, I don't want to go to that appointment this morning. Or, why am I not going to Cracker Barrel for breakfast? Or, what do you mean you're sold out of cinnamon crunch bagels? <laughs> but those early in the day challenges are very fright and silly. I know that for some, serious illness and an unwell body are constant drags or any enthusiasm for getting up and greeting the day. <coughs> Pardon this cough. I picked it up on a Viking cruise three weeks ago and that couple from Rhode Island. (laughs) I've got their email address now. I'll get back to them. For others, just trying to subsist and meet living's basic necessities and worries that attend you when you lay down at night and get up in the morning. For some, continual battles with weaknesses of the flesh and seeming to find no way out or to feel clean and pure again are an anchor that you are dragging about constantly. For some, a marriage that began with so much hope and love and optimism has turned dry and broken and feeble and appears to have no hope of ever being renewed or even surviving. For some, a constant battle with depression creates a struggle that you can't really understand to get from one activity in the day to the next. And if you didn't enter this sermon depressed, I have a feeling that I brought you down with this cataloging of struggles that pervade any community, even the community of God's people. So how do we counter this and begin to reverse the tide of our individual battles? I think the answer is found in this Hallel, in Psalm 118.24 and I'm partial to the King James translation of it. Today is the day the Lord hath made I will rejoice and be glad in it. First of all we're dealing with today not yesterday not tomorrow not 10 years ago not 15 years in the future we're dealing with today one part of the psalmist's admonition is to focus on today. I find it interesting to contemplate how differently I would view the things that occupy my life daily if I knew that today was my last day in this life. Would I still have my window uh, coverings draped in crepe, black crepe, simply because Notre Dame hasn't won a national championship since 1988? Would I spend my last day constantly checking Facebook to see how many likes I got over some witty thing I had posted? Would I get all bent out of shape because of the elderly man plotting with his cart at Martin's keeps moving just far enough to the left that I can't get around him without running my cart into the woman backing up in her shopping scooter with that annoying beep beep noise? <laughs> Would I spend time sitting in front of a TV set watching news about the insanity of humanity? and our corrupt politicians and lament about how this country is not what it was when I was growing up, and it's not. Or you name the countless items of meaningless trivia that seems to consume the entirety of our, each of our normal days. No, I don't think I would spend my last day consumed with such trivia if I knew it was my last day. What should I be focused on instead? Well, first of all, this day is a gift from God. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes states it rather brusquely. In Ecclesiastes 9:4, he writes anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now it's more eloquently stated in Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and 23, "The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; his mercies never come to an end; they are new every morning; great is your faithfulness." The Lord's love and mercies are new every morning, and they are a gift. And even if you haven't stopped already and are already well into this day, which has been given to you as a gift, it is not too late to stop and remember that today is another gift from God, and what are you going to do with it? When I was a kid, Christmas was a big deal at our house. Eventually there were four of us boys, and my parents went all out to make sure that we had a tree with plenty of presents under it for each of us. I remember one Christmas, my mother got the idea that we needed a flocked Christmas tree to dress it up some and to make it a little more exciting. So she got a flocking kit and went out into the garage and did a professional job of flocking that tree. And I loved it because unbeknownst to her, I like to slowly loosen the flocking off of each individual needle. I don't know why I found that to be so soothing, but I did. And I just made a confession of a 64-year-old sin. There were lean years too when money was not so available and I remember my dad who worked on the railroad waiting until Christmas Eve when the unsold trees were going at great discounts but getting it home in time to make sure we had a tree up and presents around on Christmas morning. And I confess I don't remember very much about the individual items that were given to me over the years but I do remember the giving and the sacrifices that were made to provide for a day of joy. How much more should we view this day, this day that the Lord has given to each of us, a day made for us to live according to his purposes for our lives as a wonderful gift. This morning at 8 o'clock, I left my house and driving over to Panera Bread, which I do quite frequently, to get a cup of coffee. And the sun, even though it's under clouds right now, the sun was coming out just over the horizon. And as I was looking westward, I noticed how bright the trees, the tops of the trees looked. It was absolutely gorgeous. And I thought to myself as I was sitting at the stop sign looking at it. This is a gift. Why don't I notice this more often? And just as I would anxiously unwrap a present on Christmas Day. I should be unwrapping this day to see all the blessings and the true giftedness of this day. As a great gift giver delights to give it to me. Like a parent who finds a delight in watching their child excitedly opening. What they have given them, God delights in His children enthusiastically unpacking the day that He has made for them. And the second thing I get from this hallel is that we should be proactive in two ways that are closely aligned. To rejoice and be glad in. These are acts, things that we do. There has to be an affirmative movement on our part to both rejoice and be happy in the gift of the day that the Lord has made. Forgive me for all the personal references in this sermon, but the truth is I don't know anyone nearly as well as I know myself, warts and all. My natural facial expression does not lend itself to being viewed as a happy person, (laughs) even though inwardly I'm a laugh riot. That's been true all my life, and all the time I was growing up, my mother admonished, smile. And I thought I was smiling. (laughs) I just have one of those kinds of dour faces that uh, really does not exude all the joy and charm that really is existing on the inside. Back in 1971, during my first week as a new hire with the IRS locally, there were three of us new hires in the local office, and as part of our training, we accompanied other revenue officers in the field to observe their interactions with taxpayers. I remember that first week after being introduced with the other two as new employees, the owner of the tow truck company that was towing a car that we had seized, looking at me and saying, that guy with the glasses looked like he means business. (laughs) And of course, I took that as high praise for what I was hired to do, but that's just my outward visage. But every once in a while, I'll see something that really touches my heart and softens me, and I feel a surge of happiness starting to well up in me, like a good cat video, (laughs) or a baby giggling, or little puppies chasing their mother, and the joy begins to start to radiate. Now I don't mean it gives me a killer smile but there is joy for me in those kinds of things just like there was in the joy of seeing those treetops this morning. What I'm saying is we have to look around us and find those blessings that confirm to us that there is joy to be had in this day that the Lord has made for us. And if we do it will change us. And when we talk about joy there are a few things you need to know about joy. First of all worldly joy is fickle and it's temporary. The joy of the systems of this world are a pale imitation of the true joy that only God can give us. That temporary high that you achieve with a good scotch or a hit from some narcotic will fade and leave you lower than before. And it will require an ever-increasing dosage of whatever is being used to achieve that high to reach the same level. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, especially if you've tried to find joy in the past like that and eventually it will wreck physical and spiritual health. You don't need that. God has something so much better for you, and it is enduring. And even though the friends that came to visit Job in his distress were, for the most part, dolts, every once in a while they uttered some truth. And one of them says in Job chapter 20, verse 5, The mirth of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but for a moment. Secondly, you need to be aware that the Old Testament joy was associated with the true worship of God. Our worship should not be dour and sad and forlorn. Now I was raised to think that you, I would have been a good pilgrim, let me put it that way. Uh, It's hard for me to be one that would raise my hands in praise or to move my body about as we sing. But some of you don't have that kind of a background. And while I've observed that, rather than criticize it, I think it ought to be celebrated. We should be joyful as we praise our Creator who gave us this day. There was a time in the history of Israel when God was establishing David's kingdom. And the Ark of the Covenant that had been in the presence of the people of Israel from the time of their exit from slavery in Egypt through the wandering in the, the trek to their permanent home until the days of David. And David wanted to bring it to Jerusalem. And they attempted it, first of all, on a donkey cart which was not the way it was supposed to be carried and it didn't please God and so then they decided to transport it as God had directed on poles carried by Levitical priests and when they finally saw their folly it was transported correctly to Jerusalem where David had prepared a tent to house it. The king David went down with the people and led the procession bringing the ark to Jerusalem and he led them with rejoicing and the Scripture says in 2 Samuel, chapter six, beginning with verse fourteen, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Do you really want to see me dancing this morning with all my might? Yeah, I thought you might say that. It's not going to happen. There was joy in their worship. And a little later in the story, as the procession makes it to Jerusalem, David's wife, Michael, who was the daughter of Saul, the predecessor to David, observed him from a window as he led the procession. The scripture says, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Why? Why? Well David didn't show the proper dignity as a king. He let his joy get the better of him. So what happens in David's happy home as a result of this? Verse 20 says, When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. In other words, the wife was ticked. Now most of us veteran husbands would cower and say, Yes dear. Yes dear. I don't know what came over me and go and hide out for a while until the tempest abated. But David is not going to be robbed of his joy besides he had other wives. Listen to his response in verse 21. Just an observation. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this And i will be humiliated in my own eyes but by these slave girls you spoke of i will be held in honor and it's almost parenthetically the scripture says and michael daughter of saul had no children to the day of her death now as an aside husbands don't start fist bumping each other or putting an elbow gently in your wife's side we're not the king of israel but the point is that david worshiped god with robust joy and he determined that he would be joyful and not let anyone, even the lovely Michael, rob him of that joy. And the third thing you need to be aware of is, uh, about joy is that it is also a gift from God. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit who resides in the heart of the believer. Paul, in writing to the church in, of Galatia in chapter 5 of that letter, says that joy is one of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit that he lists. Joy is also an integral part of the kingdom of God and must exist wherever believers are present. Romans 14, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, and this is a difficult one for me to get the hang of, circumstances cannot take away our joy. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, As the apostle talks about his companions were sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So, Joy is not necessarily happiness. Happiness is tied to what is happening to you in the moment. Joy and gladness is about what is going on in you. This means that even when you're in the midst of a situation that legitimately brings us sorrow, our inner joy is never taken away. The very core of our being can still rejoice in the fact that we are forgiven children of God who enjoy an intimate relationship with the Creator of the universe. Our joy is strengthened when we remember that no matter what the circumstances, God is with us and He is above all. And fifthly, it is sin that can steal our joy. This same King David who is with abandonment and great joy worshiped God without embarrassment or concerns about what others thought of Him, also experienced the momentary loss of that same joy when he allowed sin to linger in his life. I've always been fascinated with the character of David And how his story has disrupted my ability to think that I can possibly understand all there is to know about God. David is described by the prophet Samuel as a man after God's own heart. But David had his moment when he committed some pretty detestable acts right in the midst of being truly blessed by God. You know the story recorded in 2 Samuel 11. David stays at home while his army goes off to war with the nation's enemies. He gets insomnia and goes out on the roof of his palace to get some air. (coughs) And while he's out there, he looks out and sees a beautiful woman bathing. What does the man of God, a man after God's own heart do? He sends out to find out who she is. And he's told that it's Bathsheba and that she is married to one of his soldiers who happens to be out fighting David's enemies. As dominoes falling one after the other, David sends messengers to bring her to him. And he slept with her. Well, I don't know how much sleeping he got done. But the problem is, that's not all that they did. She goes home and soon finds out she is pregnant. And it has to be David's child because her husband is out being a good and loyal soldier of David. So this man, after God's own heart, sends word to his general Joab to send Bathsheba's husband back to David. Of course, you know this was all part of David's grand cover-up scheme. Get Uriah to come back to Jerusalem. Ask him some pointless questions about You know, how's it going, dude? And then send him home so that he can be with his wife. And when the child is born, no one will be the wiser because everyone will assume Uriah had a happy homecoming. What David's plan did not take into account was how honorable and how much integrity Uriah had. Uriah was so humble and honorable that he would not deign to go and enjoy the comforts of home while his comrades in arms were still in the field and couldn't be with their spouses. So he slept at the entrance of the palace. I can almost imagine that when David is told that his plan did not go as he wanted, that he said, I don't have the precise Hebrew translation, but something like, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) So this man, after God's own heart, gave it another attempt. He told Uriah to go hang around just one more day and then head back to the field of battle. But this time, David got Uriah drunk, thinking that nature will take his course and he'll go home and there won't be a congressional hearing about all of this. But even in his inebriated state, Uriah was more honorable and at least in this moment in time had more integrity than David and he again slept in the palace entrance. Now sin gets more entrenched in David's life and he writes a letter to his general Joab and seals it and sends it back by the hand of Uriah knowing that this loyal soldier has so much integrity that the contents of the letter will never be violated by him. And the letter says, send Uriah into where the fighting is fiercest then pull back so that he's exposed to the enemy. I have no doubt that when Joab read that letter, he would think, and again, I don't have the precise Hebrew translation, but something equivalent to, what the? But Joab is obedient and does precisely what David ordered and Uriah is killed. And word gets back to Jerusalem. Bathsheba does her mourning moment and then becomes David's wife in short order. The man after God's own heart was kind of messy in getting it done but problem solved right think for a moment what must have been going through David's mind through that whole process of the sin that kept on growing until finally he had murdered by proxy his loyal soldier to cover up what began as a momentary indiscretion how much joy do you think was part of David's makeup through that whole process When he is finally confronted by his sins by the prophet Nathan, the only way David could begin to recapture that joy that he had previously known was by prostrating himself in repentance before God and confessing his sins. And he does that. And it's recorded for us in Psalm 51, where David writes, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions.'" Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Now let me stop here for a moment. All of us, all of us who have lived well into adulthood can, in some measure, identify with David and what he's expressing here. With this confession, David is moving back to that place where he is able to have joy and gladness in heart in God. Continuing to read, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. When God scans the earth for potential leaders, he is not in a search for angels in the flesh. He is certainly not looking for perfect people since there are none. He is searching for men and women like you and me, mere people made up of flesh, but he is also looking for people who share the same qualities he found in David. God is looking for men and women after his own heart. What does that mean to be a person after God's own heart? It means your life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to Him is important to you. What burdens you, Him burdens you. When He says, go to the right, you go to the right. When He says, stop that in your life, you stop it. When He says, this is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. That's bottom line biblical Christianity. What is God looking for? He's looking for men and women whose hearts are His completely. That means there are no locked closets. Nothing's been swept under the rugs. That means when you do wrong, you admit it and come to terms with it. You long to please him in your actions. You care deeply about the motivations behind your actions. God is not looking for magnificent specimens of humanity. He's looking for deeply spiritual, genuinely humble, honest-to-the-core servants who have integrity. So joy and gladness is a decision. It's a choice. It's a call for our participation and action. Our disposition is a decision. And the gift of this day in which we are rejoicing and glad means we don't have to dwell on what we did in the past. The past is over. We can't change any more than David could change what he did with his sin. Too many of us doubt that God could ever forgive us. If he could forgive David for what he did, why would you continue to doubt that he can extend the same quality of mercy to you? Don't let the failings of yesterday rob you of the joy and gladness that can be yours today. So, how do you view the gift of this day now? This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Will you pray with me? Holy God, our Father in heaven, we are so thankful, Father, for your mercies and your grace. And we thank you, Father, for this day that you have made We want to rejoice and be glad in it. Father, And those things that may be in our lives that are disturbing the expression of that joy and our ability to look around us and see those things that should give us joy, Father, we ask that you help us to overcome those. Help us to see who we truly are in your sight and help us to appreciate, Father, that we are your children. Let us be people after your own heart. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.